I think all of us, um, <clears throat> at some time when we're on retreat, we, some moment, sometime during the day, we find ourselves wondering, what exactly is it that I'm doing here? You know, what's going on? What is this, all this sitting and walking supposed to be doing for me, for anyone? You know, there's nothing particularly holy or intrinsically wonderful about sitting and walking. You know, it's, these are mundane things that pretty much anybody everywhere does a lot of sitting and walking every day, don't they? I mean, they might not regard it as meditation, but the activity is pretty much the same. So, you know, what's the point? We're not here to hopefully to make a religion out of sitting and walking or to, to get really good at it in some way. You know, we don't have to spend time on retreat for that. <clears throat> and so, you know, this is obviously, we use this form, these forms of simplifying life to cut a lot of the, to simplify things and to really cut through a lot of the, the doing that, can take up so much of our lives to, to break a lot of the momentum that keeps us on the move. And so when we come and we sit in meditation, when we have time on retreat, we sit, we just sit. We walk, we just walk. And it's nothing special except that we are bringing mindfulness, awareness to this process as we're doing this. You know, we bring mindful awareness to this unfolding experience. And this is the key, that's the difference there. This quality of, this mindfulness and this quality of what's called bare attention. Where we're seeing our moment-to-moment experience unfolding without adding anything to it. We're seeing things just as they are, this quality of bare attention sometimes used to describe mindfulness, where we see things just in their true nature, apart from any of the stories we might have about it or all that we think it means. In this way, what we're seeing, then we're seeing the Dhamma in that, right? Seeing the truth of the way things are in any moment. And we can see this, we can see the Dhamma in this way at any time, anywhere. You know, no matter what's going on, we can always know right now it's just like this. It's possible in any moment. We can see see in that way. And if we look, if we really pay attention, we'll see that, that any time and any place is an, is an occasion to see, to hear, to realize the Dhamma then. We don't have to have special conditions for that. You know, we don't have to wait till we come to the forest refuge and and sit on a cushion and walk up and down to realize the Dhamma. And that's not to to say that there's nothing of value in coming here and being on retreat. Of course there is. And, And it's such a blessing in our lives to have the opportunity to take this kind of time and get away from how busy we are so much and all the ways that we find distractions and all the all that we do in our lives. And, you know, we drop this seemingly endless search for entertainment to a great degree. It takes up so much of our time. And, and just spending time in silence, you know, that's so powerful. That's such a, a powerful thing. I think if we just came to a place and, and were silent, didn't do any formal practice, just kept silent, that would that has such a profound effect on our hearts and minds and and to be able to practice with others with like-minded beings people that we share this this path with those who are committed to living harmlessly and and committed to cultivating kindness and wisdom. You know, that's so rare and beautiful and powerful in the world and to spend time with others in this way. And I mentioned in my last talk that the Buddha 
likened his teaching and likened the practice to swimming against a stream, to running contrary to the flow of things in the world. And, and if we're swimming against the stream, it's, it's useful and, and helpful to have company. You know, the support of others in that is, is very great. And for me, I think the beauty and the power of mindfulness, of this quality of mindful attention, of awareness, is that it is such a simple and so easily accessible quality of mind, of heart, mental factor. You know, it's available in any moment, but it opens the door to the entire practice, doesn't it? It's available at any time, and there's nothing that arises in experience that we can't be mindful of. And there's nothing that would arise in our experience that, that can't serve as a vehicle for the arising of wisdom and liberating insight. It actually doesn't matter what we're paying attention to. Anything can serve in that way. We don't have to attain some special state, some refined state of mind, some deep absorptions in order to be mindful. And this is really great news, I think. It's not news, perhaps, but it points to something important, that we can bring this quality of present moment awareness, this clarity of connection with mindfulness, we can bring that into any aspect of our life at any moment, no matter what we're doing, we don't have to wait till we come on retreat. We don't reserve that for times when we're engaged in formal meditation only. And if we look at the totality of our life, if we look at how do we spend our time over the course of a year, for example, you know, for most of us, aside from a few maybe really lucky ones, most of us were not mostly on retreat. We're not on retreat that much of a year. We're not engaged in formal practice that much of our time, are we? If we were to count all the hours in a year, in a month, even in a day. But if we hold our practice and our life somehow as separate things, we can place the majority of our life the greater percentage of it, we place it somehow outside the realm of practice. We can fragment and wind up compartmentalizing our life in, in a way that's not useful. And no matter whether we're on retreat or not, then we're engaged in activities just in our daily lives, off of retreat, outside of retreat, work and home and relationships and all of that. It's still just our life, isn't it? And just life is unfolding, this ongoing flow of experience, when we're either here for it or we're not, no matter what we're doing, whether we're on retreat or engaged in daily activities of making a living, we're either here for it or we're not. But we can find ourselves creating a situation where the only time and place where we feel like we're practicing, where practice happens, is when we're on retreat and and are lucky enough to be able to come to the forest refuge or someplace like this. <clears throat> but practice is life, and life is practice, and, and whether we're here for it or not, it's still going to pass by too quickly. I mean, years go by in the blink of an eye, don't they? And, and certainly I feel like my, the perception of time seems to have sped up as I've gotten older. And now I snap my fingers and another year has gone by. You know, some days, the fact that I'm middle-aged, I'm 55, I'll be 56 soon, it just seems so odd, you know, such a strange, remarkable thing. You know, how did that happen? You know, I was minding my own business and suddenly I'm middle-aged. I don't feel particularly middle-aged most of the time, Maybe when I get up in the morning, it's my most middle-aged feeling <laughs> time of the day. But the truth of it's undeniable. You know, it's happened. My hair is 
turning all, it's all gray and it's falling out. <laughs> My forehead expanding, those things that happened. I'm thicker around the middle than I like. And it seems sometimes like it's just last year that I sat in my first three-month retreat over at the retreat center next door. It seems like that just happened. And, and now, at this time, I'm sitting up here. That seems strange. How did that happen? It wasn't something I planned. It wasn't my idea. But no matter how we feel about it, life is going to pass us by all too quickly. And so it's worth looking. How are we spending our days? How do we spend our time? What do we hold as important? What do we tend to dismiss in all of that? You know, are we here? Are we present for the fullness of our lives and all the different things that make up a life? And how much of the time are we really here? You know, I think it's important to look at our attitudes about life and practice and see if somehow we've created some kind of separation or hierarchy in our minds about this and and hold them apart somehow and we see practice as something that happens at certain times you know when we're sitting in formal meditation or when we come on retreat you know or even within a period of formal practice a retreat time you know we can create subtle distinctions separation or hierarchies in terms of how we hold our our time and what we're doing. You know, is there a subtle emphasis on the formal sitting as, as that's the real thing, you know? And then walking medication, meditation has medication. <laughs> walking medication has a second class status. I think of it as medication, kind of. Take your walking medication. It'll keep you grounded. <laughs> hmm. Or do we see the daily activities part of the day? Is that just kind of filler? Or, you know, is the yogi job something that we, we want to finish so we can get back to practice? You know, are we holding things in this way where we, we're making these kinds of distinctions? And it can be subtle at times, but it's worth looking at that. You know, how do we bring practice into our life and life into our practice? <clears throat> I recently I read, was reading a book. Right? There was a passage in there that reminded me of, of a time when I was in Burma. And I, I go there almost every winter to help with a, a meditation retreat at a monastery in Upper Burma. Um, and the abbot there is a, a monk named Sayadaw Ulakana, who has been a teacher of mine and uh, was a teacher at the Mahasi meditation center in Rangoon. And sometimes when, when I'm there, I've had the chance, uh, along with some others, to do a little touring around with Sayada Ulakana on uh, half days when we have a little time off. And one time we went with him and visited uh, this area where a very famous uh, monk, meditation master named Webu Sayada had lived and practiced. And it's a large area there with quite a few shrines and, and a monastery and some caves. And Webu Saida was, uh, he lived in the last century. He was, he was regarded as having been a fully enlightened, an arahant, fully enlightened being. And uh, he was a very, um, hmm, he made a lot of effort in his practice. It's said that he practiced, there's a, uh, what's called a, a dutanga. It's a, one of the kinds of austerities that the Buddha said was okay to do. And one of those is um, the practice of not lying down. And sometimes they'll use a, a board or a, a kind of seat with a backrest, but um, it's something that uh, people sometimes undertake of not lying down at all. And said that Webusaida didn't lie down at all his entire monastic life. It said that Tangpula Sayada, another famous Burmese monk, also would not lie down. And one account I read said that Webusaida is reputed not to have slept at all. <laughs> Seems a little extreme. But there's some beautiful photos of him at the monastery there. He, was, uh, he died in 1977. He was 81. And uh, he was a, a mentor of... Uh, 
a famous Burmese lay teacher named Uba Kin. Some of you may have heard of Uba Kin, um, who was a lay, Burmese layman who had practiced with a teacher named Lady Sayadaw. And uh, Webu Sayadaw met Uba Kin and was impressed with him and encouraged him to teach. And uh, Uba Kin was, a te- was the teacher of um, Goenkaji. Some of you have practiced in the Goenka tradition. Goenkaji was a teacher of Joseph Goldstein, many other uh, Western modern teachers. So anyway, I'm babbling on, but I was visiting this place with Sayadaw Lakan, and we, we came to a small cave. Just the two of us were walking alone at this time, and well, there was a small cave where Webu Sayadaw was said to have meditated. And uh, we entered the cave and sat down, and Sayadaw was sitting in front of me, and he turned around to me when we had seated ourselves, and he said, in here we should practice anapanasati, pointed to his nose. He said, well, practice anapana in here, which um, is an instruction he would never give as a general rule. And he's, a, he's a steeped in the Mahasi tradition, and they don't do that particular practice. They use the movement of the abdomen, rising and falling of the abdomen as a primary object, and they discourage, um, for the most part, Anapanasati. But it was uh, appropriate and respectful, and um, that's what uh, we did at that time. So I'd like to read a, a short excerpt from a dialogue between uh, Webu Sayadaw and a group of his students. <clears throat> the Sayadaw said, Tell me, all of you are breathing, aren't you? Oh, yes, sir, we are all breathing. When do you first start breathing? Why, when we are born, of course, sir. Are you breathing when you are sitting? Yes, we are. Are you breathing while you are standing, walking, and working? Of course. When you are very busy and have a lot to do, do you stop breathing, saying, sorry, no time to breathe now, too much to do? No, sir, we don't. Are you breathing while you're asleep? Yes, we are. Then do you still have to search for this breath? No, it's there all the time. There is no one, big or small, who doesn't know how to breathe. Now where does this breath touch when you breathe out? Somewhere below the nose and above the upper lip, lip, sir. And when you breathe in? At the same spot, sir. If you pay attention to this spot and the touch of the air as you breathe in and out, can you be aware of it? It is possible. When you are thus aware, is there still wanting, aversion, ignorance, worry, and anxiety? No, sir, there isn't. You see there, you can come out of suffering immediately. If you follow the teachings of the Buddha, you instantly become happy. If you practice and respect the Dhamma, you remove the suffering of the present moment and also the suffering of the future. So this mindfulness of breathing, this is a great way to bring the practice into our daily lives. You know, but it doesn't have to be the breath. That was this particular example, this, this practice that Webu Sayadaw emphasized. But the body or sounds or any of the objects that one might use as a subject, one might pay attention to, some aspect of the body is a good choice in daily life activities because it's so tangible and relatively easy to connect with. And so the breath, for example, is a great object to use because it's always there as long as we're alive and it's available in any moment. And it's interesting because the breath, you know, it's so mundane and ordinary, right? It's just the breath. And yet it's so special because without it, we wouldn't live for very long. You know, if it were to stop, it wouldn't, wouldn't take long before we'd be gone, we'd be done. But it's portable, goes with us everywhere, it's available in any moment. We can always come back to it. And so I'm not suggesting that, that we all make this our exclusive object of meditation, of attention at all times. You know, we pay attention to what we're doing in daily life activities, for example. But we can hold the breath or a connection with the body 
for example, we can keep these gently as a backdrop during a lot of activities outside of formal practice in a way that really can help us to be more present, more there with what we're doing. And the point here is is to bring more awareness, more mindfulness to life, no matter what we might be doing. So we have this quality of presence more of the time. I often stress here at the Forest Refuge when I talk to people to strive for continuity of mindfulness through the daily activities, you know, bringing mindfulness to the transitions and the times outside of formal practice. Really looking at what's happening there, what's our relationship to these times. I had a teacher when I was living as a monk in Burma, Sayada Ujanaka, Chamye Sayada he's known as. And he really stressed this a lot. You know, I'd go into an, uh, a meeting with him, an interview, and I'd, be, I'd have gotten a very detailed report prepared on, you know, the rising and falling, my primary object, rising and falling of the abdomen and all that I noticed there. And, and he would just kind of say, yeah, okay, but tell me about when you're washing your face. Or how about when you're washing your robes out or brushing your teeth? What's going on then? Tell me about that. Really emphasizing that. That's what he wanted to know is how's the mindfulness at those times? And whether we're on retreat or outside of retreat in our daily lives, we can bring mindful attention to our daily activities. We might not have the same kind of fine precision in, in daily activities as we do when we're sitting and walking on retreat, you know, we might have to let go of some of that, that fine, subtle attention. But we can still be aware of our movements, of reaching, of touching, perhaps of the breath in the background, no matter what we're doing. And the point of this is not to, to point to some kind of hypervigilance, you know, where we're, we're adding stress or strain or, or tension to our lives. but just this attention to what we're doing. So we bring more of ourselves to each moment, no matter what. And I think a great help in this and a useful practice generally in life is to do just one thing at a time as much as possible. You know, we we become this kind of multitasking culture as though that were somehow a good thing, you know, and we're being more efficient or more productive if we do two or more, three, however many things at a time. So we're getting more done with that. Sometimes I think we've become kind of an attention deficit culture, where we hardly stay with anything for more than a, a few seconds. Maybe those of us who spend time at places like this, that's not so much the case, but look and see, outside of retreat time especially. But if we can keep things simple, you know, and it's a great aid to mindfulness, whether we're here or outside of formal practice periods, to just do one thing at a time. And pay attention to what we're doing. You know, even mundane and tasks that we find boring, they can be very interesting if we're actually really there for them. I mean, Yoshin was mentioning in her talk uh, a few days ago, you know, when we think of paying attention to the breath or the, the feet, the body, you know, those don't sound like really fascinating things. I mean, you tell your friends who aren't meditators when you go, well, I was watching my breath or feeling my feet walking. It doesn't sound real interesting. And yet, you know, it can be so fascinating. We can be so... Interesting if we're really there for those, if we're really present, if we're really directly connecting. Anything can be interesting. And we can bring this kind of connection where we're really there to all kinds of activities on retreat and off retreat, you know. I think of doing the dishes, for example. I know people who, who seem to loathe doing the dishes and regard it as a complete waste of time. 
But actually, you know, if we're thinking about all the things we'd rather be doing, it can feel like, you know, oh, I, this is, let me get this done, or it's not worth doing. We can miss out on the present moment and dismiss whole parts of our life. And the actual activity of doing the dishes is actually, I find it quite pleasant. Warmth of the water and, you know, the activity there. But if we're not fully present, then we can object to things like that. We find them boring. If we really pay attention, we can find that they're actually quite enjoyable and things that we write off as a waste of time they can be times to really practice, to really connect with the present moment. It not only helps with mindfulness, but it brings more concentration also. We find that we actually might get more things done if we're really there and connecting. and At least we'll be happier in the doing of it, more engaged in those moments. Something that I like to do is just notice moments of mindfulness through the day, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, whether I'm here on retreat, working in the world. You know, notice when I'm mindful. Oh, right now, I'm here. And if we pay attention, if we actually look, we'll see that we're present more of the time than we thought. We'll often see that we actually are mindful. And then we notice when we're not there, just as we do when we're sitting, you know, and the mind drifts off. We notice, oh, we wake up, we come back. We notice we drift off, we come back to presence. We can do that in any time. Notice when we're mindful. Because the power and the beauty of this practice is that we can't ever really blow it. You know, we can't blow it. Because no matter what the situation, we can always begin again. No matter where, no matter what, we can start over in any moment. It's available in any moment, mindfulness. No matter how distracted, no matter how far away we've drifted, we can wake up, we can come back. And when we're back, then we're there. We're back. We begin again. And this is the whole of the practice so much of the time, is this willingness to begin again. Sometimes when we spend time on retreat, we can get caught in a lot of doing. You know, we get very focused on doing our practice, especially if we're maybe emphasizing or exploring a particular technique or method, something that we're interested in, and we're focused on doing the practice. And I think it's really great once in a while to take a period to very intentionally do absolutely nothing at all. You know, try it if you never have done this in your days here. Just sit down and don't do anything. Let go of all techniques, any practice, and especially let go of anything you know. Set aside all that you know about meditation. And just sit. It's not easy to do that. You know, it might be one of the most difficult practices you ever don't do. You know, to just be. Don't do anything. Right now. I read somewhere, heard this somewhere, that there's a traditional way of beginning a Dhamma talk in, in some Buddhist countries. Maybe this is, this might come from the Thai forest tradition. I, I think maybe I'll start doing, opening my talks this way. Greetings, sisters and brothers in old age, sickness and death. In aging, sickness and death. Greetings, sisters and brothers in aging, sickness and death. How's that for an opening line? 
I'm not sure how well it would go over. <laughs> and I know that the other mo- morning, Myoshin offered a reflection on, on the five contemplations that the Buddha recommended that all beings, nuns and monks, laymen, laywomen, he said we should reflect on these five things frequently. But I want to revisit them a little bit this evening because I think they're, it's an important and powerful practice that we can bring to our lives in all kinds of circumstances and really very useful. So I'm going to read them over again. It won't hurt you to hear them again. I am subject to aging. I have not gone beyond aging. I am subject to illness. I have not gone beyond illness. I am subject to death. I have not gone beyond death. I will grow different, separated and parted from all that is dear and beloved to me. I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions and live dependent on my actions. Whatever actions I may do for good or for ill, to that I will fall heir. Now this doesn't sound like a real cheery list of things to reflect on at first glance, especially the first ones perhaps. And sometimes there's some resistance when we hear this and you know, yeah, we know we're going to get old and sick and eventually die. We all know this. And, and we know you can't take it with you, as they say. We will be parted from that which is dear to us. But why should we dwell on dreary subjects like this? You know, shouldn't we focus on enjoying life while we can? Isn't that a better approach? You know, Buddhism is this downer tradition, right? First we're told that life is suffering, and now we're told to contemplate aging, sickness, and death. <clears throat> this is a quotation from a Thai teacher named Ajahn Lee Damodaro. He said, aging, sickness, and death are treasures for those who understand them. They're noble truths, noble treasures. If they were people, I'd bow down to their feet every day. And that's an interesting attitude to hold these as noble treasures, noble truths. And you know, growing old isn't easy. A lot of us know this directly from our experience and from those around us. No matter how good our health and our circumstances are, it's not easy. And we don't like to think about it a lot of the time. You know, our culture conditions us to avoid aging and illness, avoid the subject of death especially. We see, you know, life is happening now. And, and these things old age, sickness, death, they'll happen somewhere down the road, hopefully down at the end of a very long road. There's this, it's almost like a kind of arrogance, unconscious perhaps arrogance that that accompanies this attitude. You know, we see that these things, you know, they're happening to someone else. We're alive, we're relatively healthy, relatively young, and okay, we'll deal with them later, you know. And we want youth, we want some stability, we want things to last, we want to stay young. And and old age, sickness and death, they don't fit into our plans very well. And our culture, it glorifies youth so much. Youth is put up on a pedestal and, you know, we're not supposed to get old. It's as though somehow it's evidence of our personal failure or bad taste or something. You know, and we hide elderly people away a lot. Our culture conditions a a widely held fear of death. You know, that's so pervasive in the culture. And we keep it out of our consciousness if we can at all. We hide hide death and dying away. And we sanitize dead bodies in funeral homes and make them look attractive and alive, you know, like they're just maybe taking a nap. We focus our energy so much on getting and having and acquiring things, stuff and knowledge, experiences, all the things that we use and help us to define ourselves and enhance our sense of who we are. can all shield us from having to really look at these truths, the realities of aging, sickness, death, being parted from what's near and dear. But the truth is that they're 
natural, inevitable part of life. It's true for everyone. It was true for the Buddha. And this is from the Jara Sutta. Jara means aging or old age. I've heard that on one occasion, the Blessed One was staying near Savati in the Eastern Monastery in the palace of Migara's mother. Now on that occasion, the Blessed One, on emerging from seclusion in the late afternoon, sat warming his back in the Western sun. And Venerable Ananda went to the Blessed One and on arriving, having bowed down to the Blessed One, massaged the Blessed One's limbs with his hand and said, it's amazing, Lord, it's astounding how the Blessed One's complexion is no longer so clear and bright. His limbs are flabby and wrinkled, his back bent forward, and there's a discernible change in his faculties, in the faculty of the eye, of the ear, of the nose, the faculty of the tongue, and the faculty of the body. Amazing, astounding. That's the way it is, Ananda. When young, one is subject to aging. When healthy, subject to illness. When alive, subject to death. The complexion is no longer so clear and bright. The limbs are flabby and wrinkled. The back bent. There's a discernible change in the faculties in the faculty of the eye, of the ear, of the nose, the tongue, and of the body. I just love this image, the Buddha in his older years, warming his back maybe on a cool winter afternoon there in Savati, and the kindly Ananda giving him a rub, a massage. And the truth is that we're aging from the moment of our birth, isn't it? We don't have any idea when we might get ill. And, and to know, we have no idea when, we're, when death will come. There's no guarantees. We're not really guaranteed even the next breath. And when death comes, it's going to take all of our acquisitions, including our sense of self. It's not waiting for us at the end of the road. It's our constant companion. It walks along with us. But if we can live with this understanding, with a real relationship to these truths, with the understanding that death is going to part us from everything, everything that we might hold on to, including our sense of self, we can start letting go now and save ourselves a lot of suffering down the road later on. And sometimes we fear that these kinds of contemplations are going to be depressing or create somehow a sense of powerlessness or resignation in the face of the inevitable. But the point with these is not to feel bad. And we actually find when we actually bring these contemplations to mind, to heart, really sit with them, that actually the opposite is true and there can be a lightening. We can begin to let go of fear and And the point of it is to understand, to see through our conditioning around these things and begin to let that go. They cut through our identification with the body as self and point to a bigger picture, you know. We say, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not myself. And ultimately these reflections lead to the insight into not-self. They take us to the unborn, the unaging, to that which does not die. And we take our stand on reality. We stand on the truth of things as they really are. They awaken in us a sense of the preciousness of life. Miyoshin was speaking about this a lot last week, earlier this week. This quality of spiritual urgency, the Pali word samvega, Most of us are familiar with the story of Prince Siddhartha, the Buddha, before before he became a monk and a renunciate and before his awakening when he was the young prince. And and he went out, you know, of the palace where he'd been sheltered from any of life's unpleasant things and only beautiful things there. And it was this shock of seeing what are called the four messengers, the four heavenly messengers sometimes, 
his reflection on seeing an aging person, an ill person, a dead body, seeing a renunciate who seemed calm and peaceful in, in the midst of all of that. This is what propelled him into his quest. He, he said, why should I, who am subject to aging, sickness, and death, seek that which is also subject to this? And so one way that we can connect to Samvega, to this sense of spiritual urgency, is to touch our own mortality directly. We connect with the fragility and the brevity of life, not in some kind of morbid way, but we touch the beauty and the preciousness of life, and we want to make the best use of our time in, in light of that. You know, we look at our life from this perspective, what matters, what is really worth doing. I'd like to read a poem by Mary Oliver. I know some of you know this. She's sort of the poet laureate of IMS. This is called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, is gazing around with her enormous, complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open, floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass and how to kneel in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And all of us here have some connection to this quality of samvega, of spiritual urgency. We wouldn't come here otherwise. It takes a big commitment to come on retreat. Not many people would consider doing that. But it's worth looking at our priorities, to check in with our aspiration, to have a relationship with our highest aspiration, and ask ourselves, what is it that's worth doing? There was a subtle but actually quite powerful shift that came for me at one time when I I made a decision, a conscious decision, that I was, I was in this for the long haul. That's how I put it to myself. And I think I, I said it to one of my teachers once, a long time ago. I said, I'm in this for the long haul. It doesn't sound like a big deal, but, but actually that determination, that, that's been a powerful thing for me. It's made a big difference in, in a certain way. I think it's had the effect of reducing a certain kind of pressure that I, I used to put on myself to bring, and I'd bring it to retreats, a pressure to, um, where I was always looking for results and assessing my progress. And I realized that no one retreat is gonna make or break my career. That's not the way it is. And, And so there's a a certain kind of relaxation that isn't a reduction of effort, but a change around some unskillful kind of striving. Miyoshin spoke about this in her own life earlier this week or last week. And I think taking a long view also allows us to touch a lot of good qualities that we are developing in our lives, no matter what we're doing. And they can go unnoticed if we're focused on getting some kind of result, some idea we're holding of progress or result, like these paramis that I spoke about in my talk on Donna and Sila, you know, these beautiful qualities that we're developing those no matter what we're doing, just by our willingness to begin again. 
It helps us to see that our practice unfolds in all arenas of our life, not just when we're sitting on the cushion. <clears throat> last week I, I began my talk, or near the beginning of my, my talk last week, I told a story about a monk teacher who I'd, I'd seen and he was giving a talk. He'd been a monk for 25 years at that time and he said, he'd, he said I've been a monk for 25 years now and I want you to know I haven't gotten anything out of it. Later in that same talk, he said, he made another statement that has stayed with me now over the years. He said, we're all swimming in Nibbana with our faces pressed up against the Buddha. We just don't see it. He was, he's good with one-liners. But you know, it's true. It's not just a sort of interesting or poetic statement. You know, we are swimming in the unconditioned. It can't be any other way. It's not that we come to a retreat and create special conditions so that it comes into being and then we have a chance to realize it. The realization that the Buddha was pointing to, the freedom and liberation that he was talking about, it's available in any moment and we come to it by letting go into the present moment completely, not by some special experience we might have or some sublime state of mind that we might be able to, to achieve through our efforts with some practice or technique. In his book called uh, Breath by Breath, uh, Larry Rosenberg, who's the founder of the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, probably a teacher of some of you. He said this, at the heart of our practice, behind everything else, surrounded by everything else, within everything else is silence. Enlightenment has been called the great silence. And he goes on to say, this silence is extremely shy. It appears when it wants to and comes only to those who love it for itself. It doesn't respond to calculation, grasping, or demands. It won't respond as if you have designs on it or if there's something you want to do with it. It also doesn't respond to commands. You can no more command silence than you can command someone to love you. I remember someone else once said, enlightenment is an accident. Meditation makes us accident prone. That's really all we can do, isn't it? And then we begin to touch this silence that he was talking about, this stillness underneath all the movement and the dance of life. In moments of deep letting go, and that can happen at any time. Sometimes in profound states, deep in meditation. Sometimes in the midst of activity. We touch that silence, that stillness. It's not separate from life, all the arisings and passings of life. It's not separate, but it's not affected by that. It's like the stillness of the ocean beneath the movement of the waves. It's always there. It's a stillness and a silence that that contains the power of nature. that is the power of nature. It's the source of all things and it's that to which all things return. Somebody, I think it might have been Ajahn Chai, I don't know who said this, I heard it somewhere. It's one of my favorite descriptions of, of what happens, what we're doing with our practice. He said, what we're doing with this practice is we're giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. This is how we let go. We just give it back to nature. We touch this great silence. We see that our life is is this dance of nature unfolding, life living itself moment by moment. It's all in tonight with some words from T.S. Eliot. 
This is an excerpt from Bernd Norton in the Four Quartets. <clears throat> At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards. At the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say there we have been, but I cannot say where, and I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. The inner freedom from the practical desire, the release from action and suffering, release from the inner and the outer compulsion, yet surrounded by a grace of sense, a white light, still and moving. So we'll have a few quiet moments here, let these words drift away, and I'll ring the bell and we can chant the verses of sharing. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. I know you're a captive audience, but I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.